We're fortunate to have an administration again that believes in climate change and believes it's the role of government to do something about it. We still have quite a bit of work to do in the financial regulatory space. The challenge, of course, to addressing climate change is to rewire the economy with new regulations and incentives so that the economic activity creates a more sustainable planet, not a less sustainable planet. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. The death toll is rising from that historic heat wave broiling the West, and it's fueling a wave of dangerous wildfires. Throughout the heat wave, Washington State reported more than 1,300 emergency room visits for heat-related illnesses. Officials believe the increase in fatalities is likely linked to the extreme weather. Death Valley saw 130 degrees, pushing toward the hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth. Nearly one half of the country, from the Pacific Coast to the Great Plains and the upper Midwest, is experiencing moderate to exceptional drought conditions. It's expected to get worse through the summer. Snow cover is the lowest it's been in the 21 years that NASA satellites have been monitoring it. There simply isn't enough water to go around. It's shaping up to be the worst water crisis in generations. There is no meteorologist who would have said, yeah, can get to 121 in Canada, but we need to switch our thinking because we live in a climate-changed world, and that means the things that seemed impossible are now not just possible, they are probable. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, there's a there's a, an old saying that everybody talks about the weather, but nobody ever does anything about it. And and my God, sitting in Seattle right now, Nick, I wish somebody could do something about the weather. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get hot. The forecast for Monday is 109 degrees. Remember, this is Seattle, not Phoenix. I yeah. moved here for the gloom and the rain, not for the sun and the heat. I think we've had 100 degree day in in like the the 30 years I've been in this city. And now we're going to have several in a row. And if you don't believe in climate change, you're nuts. You're yeah. nuts. Or a uh, Republican congressman. <laughs> uh, same difference. <laughs> so speaking about doing something about the weather, well, not really the weather, doing something about climate. I will admit those are two separate things. Yeah. <laughs> we're fortunate to have an administration again that... Uh, uh, believes in climate change and believes it's the role of government to do something about it. But the you know the the challenge, of course, to addressing climate change is to rewire the economy with new regulations and incentives so that the economic activity that takes place in our country and across the world creates a more sustainable planet, not a less sustainable planet. Right. And obviously, uh, you know, thank goodness for the Biden administration, but there will be an unbelievable amount of resistance to these changes from entrenched powerful interests like the, uh, you know, the oil companies and Republicans in Congress. You know what they're going to say, Nick, about those regulations? Job killer. It's a job killer. It's bad yeah. for the economy. It's going to yes. kill jobs. We just can't afford to save the planet. Yes, exactly. It's a cost benefit problem. It will cost too much 
to make sure that the planet will continue to be habitable. Also, it's communism, Nick. Yes. What we really need to do is leave this to the market and the market will solve this problem for itself. And, you know, it may sound weird to talk about the climate as an economic issue, but let's be clear, the climate crisis was created by our economy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> our modern, industrial, uh, fossil fuel-based economy. Now, to be fair, those fossil fuels, uh, harnessing all that energy was absolutely essential to creating all the prosperity we have today. But it's also created a climate crisis that fortunately we are uh, technologically advanced enough that if we, if we felt like it, if we wanted to, we could do something about it. And in the same way that the economy created this crisis, uh, it's going to be up to the economy to solve it. That's right. But the economy, the market will not solve this problem independently right. without the intervention of the public interest basically, which is what regulation is, is encouraging, encouraging good economic activity and discouraging bad economic activity. But the heart of regulation and deregulation, of course, is the issue of power and who gets what and why. And, you know, that there's this idea that you can have a deregulated economy or a more, more regulated economy. And that, of course, is nonsense. The only thing that's taking place is who's advantaged in what scenario. Right. Right. There are always regulations. The question is who who is the beneficiary of them? Right. Does Exxon get to make the regulations or does the federal government get to make the regulations? But more to the point, who benefits from the existing framework? Do the shareholders of Exxon benefit from the existing framework or does the broad public benefit from the existing framework? And as our frequent listeners know, deregulation is one of the three legs of the trickle down economics stool, the first two being tax cuts for the rich and wage suppression for everybody else. But this idea embedded in all of neoliberalism that any constraint on the powerful or on corporations will harm economic efficiency, productivity, jobs, and the economy overall, it is so central to what they're up to. And of course, is a big total pack of lies. I mean, it is, of course, true that constraining Exxon may affect their shareholders, but that does not mean that the public interest is not served. We're so lucky today to be talking with Sarah Bloom Raskin, who is at the center of President Biden's push to invest in a clean energy economy. She is a remarkable financial regulation expert with a ton of experience. She was the former Deputy uh, Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, the first woman, by the way, uh, Federal Reserve Governor from 2010 to 2014, and is currently a professor of law at um, Duke University's uh, law school. So it'll be super interesting to hear from her how financial regulation can affect these outcomes and what the administration is doing about it. I'm Sarah Bloom Raskin. I am currently a professor of the practice at Duke Law School, um, and I am uh, currently engaged in work with the Regenerative Crisis Response Committee to determine how best to approach climate change from the perspective of the economy. So Sarah, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Really happy to be here. 
And uh, we were we were looking at our records, and it turns out that uh, I believe you are the fourth member of the Regenerative Crisis Response Committee to be on our podcast. Uh, Joe Stiglitz and Stephanie Kelton and Lisa Cook uh, have been on, so we're we're trying to collect you all. Apparently, I did not know. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Uh, and we're going to talk about a, a, a policy a bunch uh, today, but we first wanted to get your feelings about how it is to be working with the Biden administration on climate and jobs. Uh, given the last few years, are you feeling more hopeful now? Well, it's a great question. And of course, if you compare what the last administration was doing with this administration, I mean, it's it's an astronomical you know, shift in a positive direction. And so, of course, the last administration didn't believe in climate change. And um, as a result, you know, the any kind of thinking regarding the use of financial regulation, uh, the use and role of fiscal policy and monetary policy. I mean, those kind of questions were not at all getting addressed um, in our, you know, on this side of the pond. Now, on the other side of the pond, there was quite a bit of robust um, yeah. thought given, you know, thought given into this. But uh, you know, so we 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 were behind, uh, frankly, um, here in the U.S. in terms of. Uh, in terms of um, how to creatively use the tools that um, Congress has already given to the financial regulators and to use them in a way that um, could actually make a difference here. So the new administration comes in and they come in with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of momentum uh, in terms of looking at climate and understanding the existential threat that it is and understanding that it has to get woven into uh, into economic policy that is all terrific and if you could so if you compare it to where we were i think we're in great, <laughs> great. <laughs> now, unfortunately that that's probably not the only metric though i mean while yeah. it's great to um and it's you know it's again you know, some of the things that, you know, I was talking about in terms of the intersection between climate change and financial stability just a year ago, right? I mean, that stuff really was not falling, uh, put it this way, it was falling on a lot of deaf ears, right? Uh, now, you know, you can talk about this stuff and it and it has real traction. That said, I think we've, we, we still have quite a bit of work to do um, in the financial regulatory space. So how the financial regulatory tools get used, exactly what they could possibly do in the realm of climate change, all of that I think we need some work on here in the US. So when you talk about regulatory tools, are uh, you talking solely about uh, regulatory powers of the administration or are you talking about additional legislation as well? it can all be done actually without without legislate without new legislation so in other words i think the um tools exist because they were tools that were used in response to the financial crisis we've seen the use of pretty extraordinary tools uh, by the fed in the response to the pandemic and a lot of this was done without new authorities without new uh, legislation. And so when I talk about them, I, talk, I what I mean are things like disclosures or stress tests, uh, capital charges, enhanced prudential supervision, uh, macro prudential supervision, macro operational supervision. These are all the, you know, these are all the words that are used to describe the different regulatory tools that are scattered across the different 
federal financial regulatory bodies. And those tools already exist. Now they haven't been used uh, to deal with this particular existential risk that, um, you know, that confronts us, but they can be, and they need to be, and they need to be done and they need to be used in a way that um, is really quite careful and coordinated and tailored. And that's the work I think that we need to be doing um, much more on now. Well, that that's super exciting. Count me surprised to hear that you believe that there are a bunch of existing tools at your disposal that can make a big difference confronting these challenges. I would have thought you would you would have told us that a whole bunch of new legislation needed to get passed in order to take a bite out of this problem. Can you give us and our listeners an example that would help us understand better what can be done? To be clear, you know, we're all familiar with the type of regulations that the Environmental Protection Agency might do. Um, but, you know, explain to us how financial regulations uh, can address the climate crisis. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and when we're talking about regulation today, for purposes of this, uh, this podcast, we are talking about particular sets of actions that a particular set of economic policymakers can take. And they are quite different from the regulations that a lot of the uh, you know, climate community understands, regulations coming out of say you know, EPA or coming out of the Department of Energy or coming out of you know, the, the local utility boards. Those are all a, a very important set of, you know, set of regulatory uh, tools. But the tools that I've been focused on are the tools that come out of the Federal Reserve, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Comptroller of the Currency, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the, the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, the regulator over derivatives and agricultural futures, known as the CFTC. So, I mean, what I'm talking about are, are, are actions that, the, um, that this dispersed set of financial regulators and economic policymakers have at their disposal. So let's talk about one that's actually currently being talked about, which is disclosure, right? So here, um, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission says, hmm, maybe what we want to see is we want to have a better understanding of what kind of carbon footprint uh, and what risk that carbon footprint might cause to a particular publicly traded company. Let's ask those firms uh, that are publicly traded to disclose, to describe for investors what that footprint uh, might look like. That would be a disclosure that may be mandated. It's currently, these disclosures currently are not mandated, um, but the SEC is looking at the idea that perhaps firms should, firms that are publicly traded should, should disclose these risks. The idea being that investors will then have a better ability to make decisions regarding where their capital goes, where they, where they, choose, to, uh, where they choose to invest. So there's quite a bit of momentum for this. There's a little bit of a you know, debate regarding whether those disclosures should be um, mandatory or whether voluntary is good enough. Um, if they're mandatory, there's a question as to whether they should be standardized 
meaning everybody discloses in the same way so that investors can compare apples to apples and can can look across potential investment opportunities and be able to determine whether um, and where their investment dollars will go. So, yeah. so disclosure becomes, you know, becomes a, a one of those tools. And it's a tool right now that's being discussed. If I could just jump in, I, I think this is super interesting. And for those listeners who have not either run or been on the board of a public company and had to deal with the filings in the SEC. I think it's worth underscoring that corporations today are required to list the risks that they face. And the documentation that they create is filled with hundreds of pages of these risk factors already today, right? It's not like you're asking companies to do something that they have not done before, other than to highlight a very real risk that they're presently mostly ignoring. And so this is this seems like a no-brainer. Um, well, to yeah, I mean, you would think it's a no-brainer, but it's 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 causing quite a bit of uh, it's it, a lot of there's a lot a lot of resistance to doing it. First of all, the actual rules state that that it's material risks that have to be disclosed. Right. So one question is whether whether the risks that are presented in terms of climate are for a particular firm material or not material. So that's kind of one debate uh, that's shaping up as to, you know, whether or not this disclosure has to happen. And, you know, and then another, of course, is, well, wait a minute, can firms disclose in exactly with the language that they would like, or should there be particular rules regarding those disclosures? And by the way, what about particular financial rules associated with those disclosures. So for example, let's say you have, um, you're holding you know, a particular physical asset that may depreciate faster uh, if it is you know, carbon-based. What should be the rate of that depreciation and can the firm choose what rate it would like and, and put down a value that it just thinks could be you know, a right value? Or should we have accounting rules regarding what the, that valuation might look like? So that investors can determine, um, you know, essentially what that what those assets are going to be worth, you know, in a climate challenged, uh, in a climate challenged atmosphere. So there's quite a bit of um, resistance to the actual notion um, of a mandatory disclosure regime. Yeah, well, of course there's resistance. I meant no brainer <laughs> from the point of view of policy. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Can you give us that? That's a fascinating one. Can you give and, us? And some... also, that's just, you know, that's just kind of one, you know, here's the thing though. And disclosure, you know, it's great to see people, you know, and firms talking about disclosure now. I mean, disclosure, let's, you know, let's think about what disclosure does and doesn't do. It gives information, right? Yeah. It doesn't give a plan. It doesn't say essentially that, you know, we will be reducing the systemic risk that can cause destabilization in our economy from climate change. Uh, it doesn't do that. It gives information. And, and then it, it tells, you know, it tells investors, here's the information and, you know, you can do with it what you, what you want. So disclosure as a regulatory tool is an information tool. And as such, 
you know, we have to, you know, I would say that's one tool. That's but one, yeah. right? And it will give information. Is it going to end climate change in time to sort of avoid the two degree tipping point? Probably not. Yeah. So, but it so can't, it's a very, but it hurt. it's a very pro-market tool since markets uh, are are feed on information. It's that's all right. about information. That's right. That's right. It's a pro-market tool. So, so what? Where else is the committee focusing? The committee is looking at all sorts of tools. So, for example, there's something called a stress test, right? The stress test was an innovation, a, a regulatory innovation, used after the financial crisis to determine whether a regulated institution, particularly a bank, could withstand the shock of a particular magnitude, an adverse shock, and what would happen to that bank if that shock was long lasting, if essentially it um, came from somewhere, you know, in these in these scenarios, you don't have to say where they come from, but it shocks the bank in a hypothetical way. And it says, okay, what, what happens to this bank? Can it continue to lend? Can it continue to um, engage in the payment system function? What happens to um, its ability to operate? Can it continue to do capital intermediation, you know, allow borrowers to borrow and savers to save? So, that's what the stress test in the context of the financial crisis um, did. And if a bank didn't so-called pass the, the stress test, it was precluded from being able to uh, engage in giving dividends back to its shareholders, because essentially if it doesn't pass the uh, pass the shock, it doesn't withstand the shock, um, it's in no position to be um, taking out capital from its cushion and giving it out to its um, shareholders. So uh, that was the first use of a stress test in the US. And it was done in the early days of, a. it was done after the financial crisis, but in the early days of the aftermath and was considered a, you know, considered a, a pretty credible tool. Now, the question coming up primarily from, you know, across the pond and the Bank of England is uh, experimenting with this, the European Central Bank is looking at it is, what about a stress test that thinks about an adverse shock coming from climate? Will our banks be able to withstand such, a, such an adverse climate scenario? That work is, under, you know, that work is underway um, in, um, uh, in Europe and um, in the UK, um, even in Asia, the, the use of a stress test is being, is being looked at. Um, the US, you know, the Fed is not looking at that right now, but that would be an example of a tool, of a regulatory tool that also could be deployed in a precautionary way, a way ahead of a stress that would let banks know whether or not they're actually able to continue to operate in a crisis, um, or will they, you know, require some kind of bailout or some kind of nationalization? What would what would happen to them? So that's another example of a tool. I'm wondering if you uh, have any insight to what the climate impact has been of uh, our past couple decades of deregulation 
and uh, where we might want to reverse some of the deregulation we, we've had in the past. Do you mean um, deregulation on the environmental side or deregulation in terms of the, the economic side? On, on all sides, where, wherever you see that there might have been um, a climate impact from deregulation. Right. Climate impact from deregulation. So probably the way to think about it is that climate hasn't been thought about as a particular stressor to... <laughs> That's <laughs> to, funny. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny if you're not, yeah, for people <laughs> who are, yeah, it's, it's, it, it just hasn't been incorporated as a particular factor that um, is producing costs, economic costs. And of course, now, I mean, we're, we're slowly starting to monitor those costs and starting to start to account for them. But it's a, it's a pretty, again, it's a pretty slow process. I mean, the costs we know about are ranging from, you know, quantifiable short-term ones to harder to quantify, but altogether real medium-term and long-term ones. So the obvious short-term ones that the regulators are now, the financial regulators are now starting to think about are, um, you know, things like the costs to clear and repair or rebuild destruction of physical property that comes from wildfires or hurricanes, property that's been damaged by sea level rise. But then there are less obvious costs, right? And still quite real, but costs associated with the effects of more drought. Um, more extreme heat on agriculture, the, the effects of drought on labor productivity, um, you know, and even less obvious. And, you know, where, where you see, I, I haven't seen any attempt uh, to quantify yet, are the costs associated with, you know, strains on public and private infrastructure, um, the costs associated with increased levels of disease, the costs associated with more frequent migration patterns, um, so costs associated with disputes, um, some of which will be violent over you know, scarce resources, costs associated with, with health and with you know, political instability. So all of that is just um, way, way in the, you know, in, in, on the frontier here. And there's been no attempt uh, by the financial regulators to start quantifying. It, it, it's kind of amazing because it, you know, one of the, the biggest bailouts in the Great Recession was, a, was an insurance company. And there's obviously huge insurance risks and, and not just straight up insurance companies, but in terms of all the, the hedging that goes on in the commodities markets and so forth. And if there's one thing we learned uh, from that financial crisis was how interconnected the whole uh, financial industry is. To not see this as a huge potential risk to the markets is just, it's beyond me. Like we never learn anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we also don't learn that, you know, emergency responses, you know, responses that come after the fact really don't completely address all the costs. I mean, in our country, our approach is okay, we can probably deal with this major crisis, but we're going to do it, deal with it after the fact. That's right. <laughs> right. And we're going to wait for it to happen. And then we're going to spend tons of money and we're going to see 
all sorts of you know collateral damage um, that comes from the spending of this extraordinary amount of money. And then we're not going to, and we're not going to have addressed really everything. I mean, there were social costs that came, significant social costs that came after the financial crisis, right? I mean, we could, you know, we could have a whole session on what those were. You know, we had, you know, real, a real, um, you know, exacerbation of economic injustice that came after the financial crisis, even though there was a response. Yeah. So what I'm thinking about is how do we, and what the RCRC is thinking about, how do we, how do we shift into a more precautionary mode of doing financial regulation? Can it be done ahead of time? Or are we going to really rely on markets and market-based solutions to be the primary mechanism that will essentially protect us? And this brings us around to narrative, which um, is so important with respect to these projects. And, you know, our podcast, Pitchfork Economics, is largely devoted to tearing down the neoliberal sort of ideological framework around economic cause and effect, like raising wages always kills jobs and that tax cuts for rich people create growth. But it, But a central tenet of all of that is that any constraint on big corporations or power, any regulation, harms the economy overall and kills jobs and is bad for everyone, which is basically what you're up against, right? That every, at every turn, uh, everything you, you your team will suggest will be countered with these arguments that, you know, we could do the right thing, but that would be bad for everyone. And I guess I'm interested in how you fight through that, how... How do we teach people that these things that we're trying to accomplish actually don't cost you more money, they cost you less money in the end, right. uh, even if they may be bad for a few shareholders at Exxon Corporation? I mean, one thing I have learned over the years from engaging in financial regulation is that it's a very abstract concept, and it's really hard, um, it's really hard to get your you know, get your head around. And I think we need to do better in using, using like visual images, using particular metaphors that will really help make the case on this. Cause this is, you know, this is, you know, first of all, when people hear the word regulation, um, they immediately say, ah, well, that's a cost. I mean, that's, that's, right. that can't be, you know, that can't be something good. You know, e even people who might understand the positive power of a regulation, they see it as, you know, most neoclassical you know, economists see it, which is as a, you know, a kind of a shift in the supply curve, right? It's something right. that is it's not. Friction. It's, it's friction. friction. Right, exactly. So I think, I think one way to, to deal with this is through metaphors. And I have one, actually. It's a, um, a, a kind of navigational metaphor that I've been um, working with. And, you know, I'm no sailor, but I, um, I did read an account of some sailors that brought, you know, to mind this supreme maritime challenge. And it turns out that, you know, up off the coast of British Columbia, there are these two powerful sets of currents that are very close to each other and they nearly intersect. And one powerful set of currents is called the Strait of Georgia. And the other set 
that is very close um, and also very powerful is called the Queen Charlotte Strait. And although the straits produce vortexes that can spin you under, there lies between them, between the two of them, a single narrow passage. And traversing the straits while not becoming subject to the vortexes is exceedingly challenging because of the instability and the narrowness of this single passage that exists between them. So if you are, if you are navigating this passage, you know that any wrong move can throw your boat into one or the other powerful and dangerous currents and vortexes. And the only way to maneuver through this passage between the two straits is to have instruments. Instruments like rudders of the most sensitive kind and someone who can deploy these instruments and rudders in such a way that a glide path is created for safe passage. So maneuvering through the unpredictability and the costliness of weather-related events really isn't unlike this exceptional maritime challenge. You know, one set of currents is the historically established and foundational carbon-based economy. And the other set of currents is the, you know, yet to be realized aspirational future resilient economy that we need to glide towards in order to avoid the costs that are going to arise from a, you know, one and a half degree increase in temperature. So right now, where are we? Right now, it's as if we're in between these currents and we're attempting to maneuver away from the destructive and costly forces that the carbon-based economy is creating while heading towards the regenerative and beneficial systems that are associated with a more durable future state of the economy. So this is the treacherous passageway that we're in today, that we're navigating, and we're trying to neither stay too long in the carbon-based system, nor to veer too quickly towards resilient systems that have to, you know, have to be scaled to provide the world's, you know, to meet the world's demand. So we need, the point is we need skill to do this, right? We need coordination and we can't just put down the rudder, you know, hands off and put down the navigational instruments and assume that the boat is going to take care of its own maneuvering, right? So the skill and coordination are what smartly crafted financial regulation, you know, including market regulation and prudential regulation. That is what um, those regulatory tools do. They are the rudders that are going to get us through the passageway, through this transition. And we need them the way we need a rudder, right, to help us transition to, you know, a net zero economy in the most stable and least dangerous way possible. That's a fantastic answer to that question. <laughs> a long answer. I, yeah, it's okay. I, I it is a fantastic funny. answer to that question. <laughs> so you're, you're ready for the, the final question, Nick? Yeah. So Sarah, why do you do this work? Wow. Well, this is, you know, we call this a risk, right? We say climate risk. We say, you know, climate change is coming. We say this is something that is going to, you know, end uh, and civilization the way we, you know, the way we know it. Um, 
But the reality of it is it's here. It's here right now. We're actually dealing with it right now. And we have to, we have to be doing more. We call it a risk, but it's, it's, it's here. It's not a risk. It's we've, we've, we're seeing it with, with, 100% probability. So it's it's here. And we have, you know, we have responsibilities. Um, you know, we have responsibilities to our to our next generation. And if we, you know, I, I certainly don't want to, you know, look back at my life or have my children look back at at what I did and say, and you did what? Nothing? You didn't think about this? You didn't, you didn't incorporate this into into your work. Now I'm not, you know, I'm not a climate scientist and I don't, you know, I, I can't explain the climate science of this, but I do know what I know, and that is financial regulation. And it seems to me that we all know something. We all have something that we bring to the table, bring to the collective table of, you know, figuring out how we're going to make the world better. And um, we bring what we can. And for me, this is my knowledge, uh, my expertise. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm 100% right, but I do feel a responsibility to to bring what I know and share it for the common good. Absolutely fantastic. Well, Sarah, this was just a terrific interview. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us. Uh, well, you guys are great. I must say, I was genuinely sort of surprised by the, uh, just it's surprised and encouraged that there's a bunch of existing regulation around that may help us get a handle on some of these problems. It doesn't existing, require new legislation. Yeah, existing yeah. regulatory powers. That's right. And, right. and I, you know, I think... Uh, I think Sarah is absolutely right that making some of these things more transparent and uh, could make a make a huge difference. I, I find it very, very interesting. I, I was really struck by her raising the issue of metaphor because I felt very, very strongly about that for a long time. And in, in our book, The Gardens of Democracy, we devote a lot of thinking to metaphors and in particular, the mechanistic metaphor that most people use to describe the workings of an economy. They think of it mostly subconsciously as this machine-like apparatus that churns out uh, prosperity like uh, donuts from a donut-making machine or something like that, which is, of course, not the way it actually is. It's best to think of an economy like an ecosystem. But if you think about it as a machine, as we do, and use words like regulation as the way in which we describe it, you automatically put folks, put sort of unconsciously in this framework of, of believing that it will bring harm because the word regulation literally means in the dictionary to, to constrain, right? To slow right. down. And if a good economy is going fast and a bad economy is going slow, then regulation by definition uh, it creates broad public harm. And so, you know, Eric Liu and I in our book said that we need to get rid of the word regulation and talk instead about standards as a way for people to understand how this stuff works. High standards are good, low standards are bad, and everybody needs to be held to a high standard. 
uh, including um, companies that are subject to financial standards. And if the standards are high, they'll behave well. And if the standards are low, they'll pollute and do terrible things. That metaphor around regulation is so baked into orthodox economics, into the equilibrium systems, so that people just have that automatic knee-jerk reaction that uh, regulation slows growth. And, and I'll just add a biological metaphor there. You know what unregulated growth is in, in a body? It's cancer. Cancer, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not the kind of growth we want. No. Uh, we we want to regulate growth. We have all these mechanisms built into uh, our bodies to regulate growth so that we don't get cancer. It's, and when those regulations fail, that's when things uh, go bad. So uh, the same is true in the economy. And, you know, a little regulation actually is good for growth. Yep. The right Absolutely. kind of growth. It is indeed. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're doing another Ask Me Anything. Uh, so tune in as we answer listener questions. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.